Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. As a reminder, make sure to write a review, share the podcast, tell a friend, help us grow. Today, it's Farb and Eddie. We got in the booth Justin Bridges, who is a New York City fashion photographer and also runs a financial literacy podcast. He came today to, to geek out with us about what it's like being Black, growing up in the white suburbs, uh, his views on gun ownership and the Second Amendment, and also his path on financial literacy and why it's important. So listen up. what episode we're at i think we're close to we're 29 or 30 we're gonna have to fact check right after this but yeah. we're really excited to have uh justin bridges on he has a podcast himself it's called freelance kills he also is a photographer in new york city he's the owner of peach studio we were introduced to him by a mutual friend of ours and really excited to dive into a few different issues in particular one which we're gonna i'm gonna hit up a little bit later but we've been wanting to talk about guns because as you all probably know our co-host Jim has, has recently been a little bit radicalized and has been talking about uh, black gun ownership. So we've been wanting to have someone who can get on the record and actually talk about it in an authoritative way. But uh, Justin, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Well, look, I, you know, there's so obviously we're going to have to get into guns, but, you know, I think it's important for, you know, people to have a little bit of understanding kind of your worldview and we can talk about the photography and some of the things you're doing today but you grew up in georgia right yeah yeah i'm from i was i was actually born in somerset new jersey uh nobody really knows that but uh when my when i was one and a half my dad got a job at coca-cola uh down in georgia so we moved down there and i uh and i you know spent my whole childhood teenage years in in atlanta georgia or just outside kennesaw marietta area and my in terms of that worldview uh, point is like my mother was sort of more the conservative type and my dad was on the more liberal end of thing. He's probably the most tolerant person I've ever met. And I couldn't help but being sort of a mix of both of those things. And that's, that's how I came out. <laughs> Got it. So you, you know, you mentioned in, in your, your medium article and then also again in your podcast that you grew up in a white suburb in Georgia, or maybe just went to high school there. Like how, how was, where, where did you spend most of your time growing up and, and you know kind of what was the sort of the makeup of the neighborhood yeah so it's interesting so i grew up in a mostly i would say predominantly white neighborhood uh, in the suburbs so like ackworth kennesaw is all in cobb county um cobb county has a mixed population but i'd probably say it's at least 70 percent white and i went to high school so i went to elementary school which was predominantly white Middle school started becoming uh, much more mixed, and I actually had a population of people I could hang out with that looked like me. And then in high school, it was sort of, it was still a lot of white folks, but then there was a lot more black people, a lot more Hispanics, um, and then a couple of Asian people, uh, you know, peppered in there. And and so it was sort of like this, this cross between everything. You could, I know it sounds weird to say, even though I grew up in a white suburb, I sort of chose the people I wanted to hang out with. And, you know, my siblings, or you guys don't know this, my siblings are mixed race, they're half white. My dad had a prior marriage before my mother, and they sort of had all the problems you would get from a broken family, I guess you could say. 
my older sister uh, chose to hang out in the streets for the most part. Uh, all the men she dated, all the all her friends, they sort of were from the other side of the tracks. My oldest brother uh, had substance abuse issues. And so I, I basically, I'm trying to paint the picture that I got exposed to a lot of things, uh, regardless of where my house was. And and so I, I feel like I got sort of, I walked this this fine line. Like I would, the, the, what I usually tell people is like, I, I secretly played in the orchestra because I wanted to make it to college and I needed to have extracurriculars, but I was also hanging out with dudes. Like I, I've been to the trap house several times, you know, like <laughs> I was kind of doing both things, you know? <laughs> Dual citizenship. Exactly, um, exactly. <laughs> And I'll never, and I'll never like, I'm not going to push the narrative that like I'm a thug or anything. Like I just, there was something attractive with that lifestyle uh, because I was a immature kid, you know? Right. And, and was some yeah. of that, you know, connected through like your siblings or was that just through general friends? Cause sometimes, you know, you just want to be cool with your like older brother or sister. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Like I, I think a lot of it came from the fact that when I was in elementary school, I felt my difference really heavy. And by the time I got to middle school and there were finally black kids for me to be friends with, especially because I played basketball, I like, I ran to the black side of myself. You know, I, I was looking for an identity thing. And, you know, at the same time, I was slowly watching sort of, uh, especially my sister, sort of form her identity. And I never, we were, I mean, they're 10 years older than me. So I never had that opportunity of being like, oh, I want to, I'm going to hang out with my sister and do the thing she's doing. So I just sort of created my own ecosystem based around what I saw, what I wanted, what was appealing to me. And it just so happened that I really, really wanted to lean into the side of me that I felt like was denied for the first, you know, six year or, you know, elementary school, if you will. Got it. Yeah. I hope you don't mind us sort of leaning into the, to the biographical. The reason I, we wanted to, because, you know, I, I grew up in a, a white state, you know, not not just neighborhood. I grew up in New Hampshire, so it was. So I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of parallels between us. But but it's interesting that you know, obviously Georgia is not a white state. It's it's besides Mississippi, one or one of the probably one of the most black states in the country. Um, so you always had kind of if you were in a white suburb, you also had proximity to black people, black neighborhoods, and sort of black culture, obviously. So your 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 siblings had. Is your dad black? Yeah, so my my bo both my parents are black. My dad, I mean, you can probably see mostly because the light's coming in, but I'm a little bit more, uh, I'm light-skinned uh, to some extent, except for the sunburn that I've got going on. Um, <laughs> but my my <laughs> my dad is uh, very light-skinned, like almost, ah. uh, if he didn't have the hair that he had, he'd be pretty much white passing in a lot of cases, especially, ah. you know, couple decades ago right, um, right, right. but he's really really light-skinned and he what i said about that whole tolerance thing is like i remember asking him like uh i remember asking my mom as a kid was my dad white or black and she was like oh justin i would never do that to you i wouldn't want you to be confused growing up <laughs> and at the time i didn't realize what she was saying but when i finally got to have that conversation with my dad he's like well you know like we have probably german and uh, you know, all these other things. And I was just like, what is this conversation? I just want to know if I'm black or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I feel you on, on, on what you're saying though. <laughs> Yo, and this is, what was it like two episodes ago far, we talked about capitalizing the B in black and a black identity and kind of mm -hmm. what that means, like a black ethnicity versus a black race. And you know, how, you know, I, I talked about in, in the in the episode 
kind of what the differences are. And, you know, the differences can't be untied from from racism and, and the history of those those two different categories. And sort of a lot of times people are confused which thing is part of, of sort of which. So when you talked about like going to the because I do I went through the same thing. Man. I when you talked about like you were in the band, but you also sought out a black identity and sort of community and that sometimes took you to the trap house and and you know and you you understood sort of the, the dangers of it but you knew you had to sort of have it that kind of identity especially in your formative years you know same with me kind of growing up middle school and high school but like how did you conceive of what sort of blackness was when you were when you were growing up i mean that's a pretty massive Ooh. question but like <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean because you talked about like your dad and, and being light-skinned and that like i totally get all of that but like how, how do you in a white neighborhood in middle school uh, well elementary school was it was predominantly white and you sort of it was a glaring difference between you and, and your classmates and stuff like that but then as you went up to middle school and high school it started to be more mixed and stuff i guess you know let's say in, in the middle school or high school when you see people kind of sort themselves you know how were they like how are they sorting themselves exactly and then how did you kind of like adjust your identity to that that's that is a that's a difficult question, isn't it? Um, let me try to I'll try to unpack it the best I can. I mean, I think you know what it, what happened for me was in elementary school. I most often, almost I would probably say almost all the time, I'd be like one or two black people in the room. When I got to middle school, it would be like five, six, seven. Homeroom would have several. You know, like it would it would just be it almost became a thing where it felt like it was. 50-50, even though it obviously wasn't. Um, and then you start seeing, you know, when you're trying to join an in-group or be part of a, be part of any kind of group, you just start see people pulling outside of lockers and, you know, in, in class or whatever before it starts. And you're just like, man, all these people seem cool. Like they seem like me, like they look like me. I, I mean, this is my vibe. Like I want, how do I get into this? Yeah, yeah. The funny thing is, and this is the most embarrassing part of it all, is I got into, I, I remember uh, sixth grade, I don't know in what order I took these classes, but I remember my first, I, I was taking an uh, orchestra as a, uh, what do they call that? An extra, or not uh, elective class or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that class, there was uh, a young man, young man, his name was Jared. And uh, Jared was a black guy. And I remember after I got to know him after a couple classes, I was like, dude, you got to introduce me to your friend group, man. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm cool enough, whatever. And I don't know if you've ever heard this, especially coming from New Hampshire. You might know where I'm going to go with this in a second. But it often happens that this, this um, lack of feeling like you're black enough, it doesn't come from, it, it comes from within, but it also comes from your own peer group. It doesn't come from white folks. Like, it's very, very uh, far between that you have a white guy go or a white girl go you're not black enough to hang out with us, right? It's the, it's the black mm. set of people. And I remember mm. trying to get in that group and, and having some of the most horrible identity issues which I've reflected on now that I had therapy. Um, but some of the worst <laughs> issues that I had was like, you know, girls being in that group that I wanted to talk to, I was attracted to being mm. like, what'd you just say? That sounds white as hell or, you know, some, some <laughs> shit like that. And I think uh -huh. a lot of what propelled me is not just wanting to be in that group, but a lot of what propelled me to sort of seek out and go so hard in the paint was like, oh, I'm being told that I'm not black enough and I want to step up. Like, this is me. Yeah. I know I'm, I know I got this in me, so I'm going to get my shot. Um, and that sounds so twisted and so mental, but it's, 
it's just so true. And I, I don't know if this happens to a lot of black kids out there, but I got to think that if it happened to me and I'm fairly normal, that it's probably happened to a couple of kids where they leaned into it so much harder than they needed to. Because, you know, in 2020, I feel like I can just be me. I can talk about finance. I can go do this. I can do, who gives a shit? I can go summer in Montauk, although I've never done that, but I could go do that and not care about <laughs> whether somebody thinks I'm black or not. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's good, man. This is, um, yeah, the whole black guy, you know, not being black enough. I, similar thing with New Hampshire, it was just all white all the time. So there wasn't really like a black group. And I like that turning point that you pointed out. Like you, you saw, you saw this dude, Jared, he was cool. And it was like, listen, I, Jared, help me be part of your crew type of thing. Like that sound like sort of a little bit of a turning a chapter kind of thing. I didn't quite have that opportunity, even though I would probably have just done the same thing. New Hampshire is like 96, 97% white. Oh damn, I didn't even realize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cause it's, you yeah. know, uh, in podcasts- It's, it's Wonderbread you know, white. It's Wonderbread <laughs> white, right. And, and Favre is, you know, got some uh, future in-laws uh, from New Hampshire and stuff. So we, you know, New Hampshire, one of the original 13 colonies, New England, like that history goes back. But uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, it was just all, you get you get these sprinkles of black folks. And then I would just always go and search out every black person. If, I, if we started the new year and I saw somebody black or Hispanic that I hadn't seen before, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go. You know, I'm like the welcoming <laughs> committee. Hey, what's up, man? Yeah. You're new here, what's up, how you doing? I'm Eddie, um, you know, let me, let me t- walk you around type of thing. I did that every single time. And high school, there was like, the whole high school enrollment was probably 1,700 or 1,800. You know, it was a public school um, in, a, in a suburb in New Hampshire, um, you know, good school system. But there was like seven or eight black people, or maybe six or seven. Or maybe then it might even be people, people of color, too. You know, I'm talking about like Dominicans yeah. from Lawrence, Massachusetts, right? Where you right, just right. Fold, fold them in, too, you know, who they might not even identify as black. But what they knew is that they were not white. So I think. I think what happens is, so most of the black friends that I would go seek out, I had a huge tie to my cousin, my first cousin. His name's Jared, coincidentally. He grew up in Boston, but then he moved to Miami, Florida. Um, He would basically, my whole, he would introduce me to everything black. My whole black identity initially came from him. My love for the locks and Jadakiss comes from him. You know, my clothing, you know, comes from him and movies, all of that. So when I got older and ability to drive, I played basketball too. So that, I don't think I would have a, as much of the connection of black identity in New Hampshire if it wasn't for basketball. Cause you travel to play games. Right. And you know, oftentimes, you know, you, you know, would see black people on other teams in New Hampshire, sprinkled at other high schools. You would meet folks traveling, playing AAU. And then I would go to, I would drive to the city to play ball in, in more of like the metropolitan area of New Hampshire where there was a little a couple more black people, but I just made friends with all of them. And then even in, in Massachusetts, I would drive to Boston or I'd go to Lawrence, Massachusetts, where it's just all Dominicans. I, I, I really need to read up on how it got that way, but it, it was just like this little Dominican Republic in, in, in Massachusetts. So I would seek it out. So it got it more gradually, but it wasn't, the, the interesting thing is that it, there, that dichotomy did not exist in high school, which I think is a really mm-hmm. interesting dynamic, right? Where you literally have, you know, the lunchroom split up in tables, right? That's, right? that is an interesting thing that I never experienced. And it's probably, you know, even crazier to sort of see. But I, I co-signed your thing about being black enough. Here's how I see how we conceived blackness when we were younger. Blackness, in terms of the black identity, you can't sort of describe it without its aspects of counterculture to what we understood to be white. So with 
black folks in operating in a cer certain social strata in communities and neighborhoods and cities and that kind of stuff in order to assert an identity and assert sort of agency we grasp to all the things that we don't perceive it as as white and that makes sense to us in that context mm -hmm. of like this is our culture over here we don't you know we're not integrating with the oppressors necessarily like this is our whole thing is over here this is what we've built over here and this is not white and this is what we grasp to and this is what we build our identity on i think earlier on it was a lot of sort of high school and middle school conceptions of blackness are, are definitely one of, of counterculture to the dominant culture which we understood to be white so I, in terms of wanting to go headfirst into blackness and you know bear hug the thing like that was i did that too like i had cornrows in middle school i so did i <laughs> i had i stuck out like a sore thumb like i you know i had like you know sort of a not like big ass chain but like these things were deliberate decisions to express i'm embracing this identity and i'm not trying to you know integrate into this other thing because you know i i'm sort of asserting my control in this so that that's what makes me think of when you talk about you know i don't know if this is true for other people it was is 100 true for me you know what you described that's that that's absolutely it's almost clairvoyant i mean the whole idea of of, of counterculture being the sort of the foundation point is so interesting because it's like through rebellion comes another sense of control and as a yeah. black person living in a white world, you have that lack of control. So how do I take it? I'll be the fucking asshole that's coming at yeah. you. I'll, I'll start the fight at the football game. I'll like everything that I possibly could do to be immersed in that. So, I mean, you know, what's really funny too, is like in sixth grade, when I, I think it was sixth grade is when Cash Money inked their deal and they published it in the Source magazine. I ripped mm. out all the pages from the article and put them in my first locker. I went out and bought one of those cheap sterling silver cash money chains. That was hey. the first year I decided to get my hair braided. I had like yeah. Iverson cornrows. I mean, I yeah. went fully in in year one. And then it then it becomes one of those things where when, especially because we have different stages of life where you change, you, you maybe don't change your identity uh, completely, but you definitely have these pivot points. I'm starting a yeah. new school. Yeah. I get a new identity, et cetera. I, I, uh, I remember I was on that in that snowball for so long that it, it got to the point where, you know, there were there were many times that my parents were worried there would be no coming back for me um, in high school going on. And I've talked about this in one of my articles, but uh, going on an attempted drive by where no guns were fired, but we were going looking for somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I went to I, I remember going to a CVS once and I've been meaning to go back to this police precinct to see if there's still a record because I wanted to come face to face with like my old life. But I remember on behalf of another friend, I drove him to go see this dude that was giving him trouble. And I walked up in the guy's job with like baseball gloves on talking about how he needs to come outside and we're going to bash his head in and all this other shit. And he called the cops and my dad ended up later on having to turn me into the police. And I had to sit in one of those rooms with the mic in front of me uh, and, and sign away my rights so we could have the interview. And I just remember in that moment was the first time I felt like this conception of whatever identity that I was going in that direction of mm -hmm. was the first yeah. time where I was like, I fold. Fuck it. It's not, nothing is worth it. Nothing is worth it. Yeah, they told yeah. me I was looking at a year in prison plus $10,000 fine. And I'm like, what, wait, what, what? Because I just told some dude I wanted to fight. And I just yeah. didn't realize how serious I was going. I remember the first time I had a gun put in my face, like I, just like a series of events where you're like, at first, it seems like a great idea. Like I'm going to get close to my blackness. And eventually yeah. you follow that wrong path. And it's just like, wait, 
I'm black regardless, <laughs> you know, like yeah, who cares? Yeah. I, I got right. the card. You can't take that from me. Um, yeah. I, I didn't mean to go down that dark path, but you get what no, I'm no, no, no. <laughs> That's also <laughs> really interesting. Cause that's also the juvenile, like your understanding of like what blackness is, right? You're like, to your right, point, yeah, yeah. this, this doesn't define me. This is, I'm seeing a very narrow lens of what also, by the way, the world is trying to say is blackness. This is just one right. component of it. It happens to be the thing that's propagated a lot right now and feels sexy yeah. and raw and like exciting, but that's actually like so one dimensional to what this experience is. And oh, by the way, you know, that's that's not me at all, you know? Right. And so, yeah. but you know, that's what we are so often in adolescence, right? We're, we're just, just these lost mesh right. of like trying to figure out like what we stand for and who we are and it's, yeah. and you know, that's why we have to have that ability to like make these mistakes, which is like the, the funny thing about even that incident where thankfully it didn't go in a bad place. Right. But that actually probably has like, you probably think about that incident more than you probably even think about because of how fundamental it was in like shifting, right. like what you stand for and kind of like your, your, your center of gravity. Uh, it's, it's so, by the way, fun, funny, interesting hearing you guys talk about this. Cause it's like, I obviously am white. <laughs> I grew up in Maryland and I would say my, my middle school, I don't know like what percentage it was. It was definitely probably majority white, but pretty like evenly balanced, right? Which county? Uh, it was Howard County, but the school okay. I went to, if you, do you know Howard County at all? I, I went to school in uh, DC, so I knew the uh, Montgomery know, PG. and PGC. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. I, I, and then I went to high school in West Baltimore, um, but I went to private school, but we still were like 20, 30% black. But it's so funny how you guys talk about it, because I would say my middle school, I don't remember like the hardcore lunch set separation, but in, but in high school, it had been divided at that point. Even though we all played sports together, we were cool in class together, like there didn't feel as much separation in like the day to day until it was the lunchtime. And lunchtime, the tables were totally split. And, and that's how it went, which is like a, a funny thing. But even when you guys are talking about that identity and counterculture, like I can, I can put myself potentially in like some of my black friends, like minds mean like, yeah, like this is like what we're looking for right now. Like, this is like what we want. Like, I'm still cool with Farber. We might hang after school. We, we like, yeah. we're on the track team, blah, blah, blah. But um, that's just, it's something that like, culture or like the world around me maybe is not always giving me yeah dude if you rewind like two decades what i'm 30 i'm 30 i'm turning 35 this year so two decades ago 15 years old um you know we talk about or a lot of people talk about representation you know like that's always that's like one of those golden ticket words that are used everywhere and it's like if i think back to where i was in high school the only the, the the highest representation of blackness anywhere was rappers and athletes that's it you fast forward mm -hmm. back to 2020 guess where the highest representation is still <laughs> you know it's the same thing i mean i'm not saying that we don't have you know you know wealthy and and uh successful attorneys doctors uh biologists uh astronauts we have we, we're represented everywhere in different places but in very limited i mean i just saw an article the other day where it was like the first female uh, black woman uh, fighter pilot graduated uh, the Air Force. Right, yeah, so. Right, so that, like one, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, I, I'm thinking back, I'm, I'm trying to think back and put myself in my high school shoes. And I, you know, one of the things I've talked about, and sorry if I bring up therapy more than once, but one of the thing I, things I talked about in therapy was like, when I, when I would go home um, looking for some sort of ally, like somebody that looked like me that I could actually relate to that wasn't my parents, 
all three of my siblings who are 10 years older than me, I mean, they were out of the house by the time I was, I guess, in late middle school, but none of them look like me. They all have curly hair, uh, green and uh, green and blue eyes or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, by all accounts are passing. So when I would go home and I wanted to sort of talk about my experience or be like, <laughs> have that experience of being black and talking about that experience at school, I didn't really have that with them. We all played ball, but it wasn't, it was, it wasn't like that. And so where did I turn to? I remember my dad showed me when uh, Juvenile's Ha came out, he played it on my way to school once. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, this is a dope. They filmed it in like the uh, Magnolia Projects. I was yeah. like, this is the most fire shit I've ever seen. <laughs> and and like, I'm thinking that's, that's how I built sort of my ideal like role model shit. Like, I was like, these dudes are dope. I want to be cool like that. I don't want anybody to be able to fuck with me. I want to be able to fight. I want to be able to be strong. All these ideas were wrapped up in that because I, even though I played basketball, I knew I wasn't going to, like, I didn't have the, the same amount of dedication that you see kids on TikTok have these days with trick shots. Like, I was, I was good, but I, was, I knew I wasn't going to make it anywhere further than college. So I was just like, I wasn't going to pin my hopes to that. I was, I mean, I freestyle rapped. I, I was like, I'm going to find some other way to get through it. I, I even thought I was going to join the military. Um, I really wanted it. I wanted to be a kick door motherfucker growing up, man. I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And then it just wow. turned out that I actually had the intelligence to possibly be something different. And so I sort of followed my mom's guidance on don't, you're not doing that and you're not playing football. <laughs> so, so Justin, we're, we're, we're going to definitely fast forward a bit. And, you know, for all of those, maybe some of you uh, listen to, free, uh, to Freelance Kills, uh, Justin's podcast, he definitely talks about financial literacy a bit. So obviously there was a little bit of a change here on the trajectory <laughs> totally. uh, coming from juvenile, but you, he went to American, I went to GW. So we, we shared DC college roots. Um, but that's interesting too, because I mean, the way at least I see AU similar to GWs, they're actually like very political schools, but you actually mm -hmm. leaped into finance after, was it, did you go directly into finance after college? No, I actually, uh, well, after college, yeah, I actually went to American University initially thinking I was going to be a double major in poli sci and business, which I had no idea. Poli sci <laughs> you know? is the natural. If you're in DC, it's you're the doing, natural. Whether you do anything with it, which I didn't as well, like that's what you do, right? Total, totally. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, to answer your question, I, I went, I did my internships in school. Um, I did them at, in finance. And then subsequently, as soon as I graduated, I went off to New York for Wall Street. Do you think so? I think about this a lot. I went into commercial real estate right after college. I took like zero business class. I took maybe one business class in college, right? I, I literally went to GW thinking I was going to go to law school, become, I don't know what the hell I thought I was going to become, but <laughs> something in like diplomacy or politics. Yeah. Um, but I found that, go so, you know, I grew up in like a middle-class neighborhood in, in, in Maryland. And then even my high school was like very kind of like middle-class, even though it was a private school. And I just didn't grow up around like money. Now, especially not like kids who went to like GW money. And I have to imagine American same, like two very expensive schools. Right. So suddenly it's like, all I'm hearing about is kids that like have houses in the Hamptons and like all sorts of, you know, people like Ed going to, you know, Oak Bluffs and Martha's Vineyard, you know, all, all this stuff I'd never even heard about. And, and just like, I think there was this pervasive just feel of like money that I'd never really thought about. And then even like the way just living in DC, we had places we were going out to, we were just like spending money. So suddenly just, it became this thing. So I went into commercial real estate. So I was just like, well, shit, this is a, I see people that I know whose families come from a lot of money. They're doing this. Like, I want to get on this train. And it was like the first time in my life, I think I actually was like really thinking about money as opposed to some other things that drove me. Was, I'm not going to go into my life at all, but like my only point in saying this was 
do you feel like college had a little part of the reason you went into that was a little bit of that meld of just being around like a new composite of people and just like because to me i was like wow this feels like a cheat code almost like you go into these industries that kind of sets you up it wasn't as much of like i'm like there's like thirst for money but more of just like oh i can hack the system now oh man that's a that's actually a pretty good question um so i went so i <laughs> When I applied for colleges, I didn't have a great idea. I just had that idea of like, oh, I like this thing. Like I love arguing and debating. Okay, politics. Uh, I wanna be rich one day, business. And I put those together and I originally was like, oh, I would love to go to Duke because I know I'm not gonna get recruited, but let me try to walk on. Not gonna happen, obviously. But you have your hoop dreams. And so I applied to um, Duke, UNC, Chapel Hill, uh, UGA, uh, because I played basketball up there a couple of times with my brother. And, and then I went to, and then I applied for American because my model UN um, teacher at the time, my AP US history teacher was, I had, I had three different teachers trying to save my life. My, my model UN teacher, my orchestra uh, teacher and my basketball coach. And it was even, even to the point where the first time I went to New York as a high school kid to go on a model UN trip, my teacher called my parents and said, don't let him bring any of his, uh, any of those baggy clothes. Like I used to only wear jerbos and Reeboks and white tees and, and slouch hey. socks and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I had a, and I had a grill and all this stuff. And, and, and so I had to go up there with slacks and polos. <laughs> and so <laughs> I remember, I remember, uh, there was a kid that went to AU before I left, uh, high school cause he graduated a year ahead of me. And so that's how that got on the radar. And, it subsequently, or I mean, consequently, actually, I started getting in the worst of my trouble the later I was in high school. And then I got into, uh, I got invited to a seminar with AU. I went to the presentation with my dad, my parents, and it was like, it was mind blowing. I like, I could finally see what opportunity looked like. And sight unseen, I was like, yeah, I'm going because my parents basically had that talk with me. It was like, if you stay here, we're worried about your future. And I saw this opportunity. I was like, why not? Let's just do it. And so I just signed up and went, and then we visited after I'd already accepted the, uh, uh, my admissions. And I was like, this campus is beautiful. This is something I've never had in my life. I'm going to give this a real go. And so I, I don't think money wasn't the forefront. I think the, the first thing in order for me was like, I'm going to change my life. And then I had, uh, I joined a fraternity wise there. I don't really talk about it at all. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a capo and one of the, one of my, cause this goes into the diversity conversation a little bit again, a seven, I think it was six and a half percent or 7% of the people on campus were uh, African-American uh, or it was either African-American or um, non-white or something like that. And so I immediately, when I got there, joined like a diversity group. And then, and then uh, you know, then I was like, oh, somebody put me onto fraternities. And obviously <laughs> a black fraternity and a mm -hmm. white university is a small, small subset. Like I crossed with four people, um, not like mm -hmm. the usual intakes of like the white frats that do all the drinking at the houses. Uh, we didn't have a house or any of that stuff. And so I joined that because I was like, now I don't have, again, I'm in the same place where I don't see anybody that looks like me. I don't have my brothers and my sister here. I want brothers. Like I want people I can hang out with and relate to. And one of those frat brothers after I crossed, put me on the finance thing. He had already uh, got his uh, offer from Goldman Sachs. He was like three years ahead of me. And he's like, dude, I see what you're trying to do here. Do you think you could, you know, live a life where you got to get up at six and don't get off work till eight or nine o'clock? And I was like, that sounds horrible. Um, but he told me about the money piece and I was like, oh shit, well, this could really change my life. I'm, I'm open to it. You know what I mean? And finance became 
uh, kind of like black identity, finance became a new identity to soak my teeth and uh, sink my teeth into because it became sexy. It became the next thing to be attracted to. Um, you know, you, you get the girls, you're on the trading floor. It looks cool. It moves fast. I mean, it was like the new version of basketball for me. So I played that mm-hmm. game. Um, you know, there, there's this weird dichotomy of both like money, have and have not, black and, and white. I mean, just so many dichotomies that happened to me you know, both in high school, but, you know, college and post-college. You can be like Ed and have your name on the wall of fame at Rose Bar. <laughs> <laughs> that's another pod episode, Fog. That's another pod episode. That's a, that's a long story. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, um, we, we usually don't have time to go into, into those antics on the pod. So what did, you, what did your exit from finance look like and then and then you know obviously we uh, you know i don't know if you went directly into sort of photography and that kind of stuff but but i imagine you you know your current uh, financial literacy pod is obviously you know probably comes from the finance days you know obviously and, and and sort of you've taken it and sort of retooled it for your current life yeah i mean the thing that i think i'm gonna i'm gonna say something a little serviceable for a second i think there's a lot of people in life that feel like there's a path and when you feel like there's a path, you often negate all the things that make the amalgamation of you. And I think me getting to the point I am now, it's just me putting all the different parts that I enjoyed along the way together. So financial literacy, you started the podcast during COVID, right? After COVID right. started, right? In March? Yeah. So, so you know, uh, so why financial literacy? Yeah, so I, I think financial literacy became such an important part of my life because, again, or I, I haven't said this on the show, but I, I view life as an internship. Everything you do in life informs what you don't want to do with your life. <laughs> so, you know, I, mm-hmm. I watched my siblings have their own failures and I decided don't want to be that. Um, you know, I worked on Wall Street, decided, okay, I don't want to do that professionally. Um, and so all these things inform, uh, inform this path. And so financial literacy became about changing. I I remember, I I don't necessarily subscribe to him because I'm an atheist, but Dave Ramsey talked about changing your family tree. And that sort of planted the seed in my head where it was like, yeah, like that's something I can can subscribe to. It's like, that's why I care about financial literacy. It's fun. Don't get me wrong. I, I nerd out about numbers. But the exciting thing to me was being able to one, coach myself into changing the legacy of my family, maybe hopefully shaping the future of my, my siblings, if they listen to me a little bit. Um, and then also being able to, I'm surrounded by a lot of creatives that want to just be artists first. And they could be so much bigger artists or so much better or be able to finance that art, artistry if they would wrap their hand, heads around sort of the other side, the left brain side of things. And so I just started on this mission of wanting to either A, help somebody change their path, change their future, change their family tree, or B, help coaching people into the opportunities that are in front of them that maybe they have a sort of myopic or narrow-sided view of how their career should be shaped. And just to say to them, hey, it can be so much more and it doesn't mean you have to sell out. Um, And I thought, who better to give that message uh, then, and I, I was told this by Skillshare, like the cool, the cool teacher, right? Like I wanted to be all the podcast voice that I saw on finance. Cause I listened to a ton to sort of give get an idea what the landscape was. They're all white folks. Most of them, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot more black podcasters now. And I wanted yeah. to, and no, no shade to anybody, but I wanted to be the voice in the room that was like, 
one, I'm going to tell you about my life a little bit. I'm going to be real about it. I'm going to talk about my history. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to live my life openly. So you're going to see me change and make mistakes. I wanted to be the dude that wears the black tee and, and is, doesn't give a shit. And I, I wanted to be the guy that could speak the language. Like I can speak the language of art and commerce. And I just wanted to put all that stuff in a nutshell. And it just so happened that also quarantine led to an awakening for white people. Cause as you know, as a black guy, mm-hmm. uh, we, we all knew George Floyd is just one of <laughs> several a year. Um, and yeah. so it just so happened to finally take the, the handcuffs off. And I didn't have to feel so afraid about speaking out about what I wanted to talk about, which is black things. Um, I didn't have to feel afraid that, oh, that would turn into a client not wanting to work with me. I mean, maybe it will, uh, but at least I, I feel more empowered to do so. And so it's become this amalgamation of both racial issues, but mostly the the precepts are finance, freelance, and personal wellness. So that was, that was I wanted to follow up on, on one of the things that you said, you know, with so with you know with our podcast we just the listeners already know what they're getting their you know themselves into we we talk about politics and racism and history with yours you know you had the financial literacy it's a it's a financial literacy pod and then you do this hiatus this four episode hiatus on race in America you know that's that's a a sharp transition but maybe not because yeah. you 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 sort of weave it into your financial stuff but in terms of like topics and, and what you're getting into sharp sharp left turn did your like regular listeners say anything did you hear anything about like hey you know justin usually i come to you for this financial literacy you're talking about this crazy heavy shit you know what gives like anybody ever say anything about that like that not yet honestly i i've got nothing but um encouraging words and (laughs) you know what's funny about that i don't know if it's because i don't have enough listeners yet or if it's just because uh what i what i tend to believe especially because I've watched the whole path of like influencership from the start of, so, I mean, we're all old enough to remember like signing up for Facebook the first time I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure. And, Mm -hmm. and so I've watched this sort of natural uh, progression of like people becoming influencers, the person becoming the brand and all this other crap. And Mm -hmm. my whole stance the whole way through it has been like, I'm just going to be me as much as I human as humanly possible. I think it's harder to want to tear somebody down that sit in the trenches with you than it is if I just, you know, wore dope clothes all the time and told you to go buy this thing or do that. You know, I'm not like I'm living it with people. And I think that just makes it easier for people to not be like, oh, don't do that. I came to you for this or, you know, Um, that being said, I fully expect at some point in my life for somebody to either circle back and try to cancel me for a view that I have (laughs) or, you know, something, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Well, So, Justin, let's let's talk some cancel stuff. Let's talk guns because guns is like, let's do it. (laughs) <laughs> we talked about at the beginning, and that's obviously like a hot button issue. But you also grew up in Georgia, so like my knee jerk is like that was just the that was I don't want to say the norm, but you probably just I'm assuming you grew up with, around a lot of people who just like had licenses, probably some people who hunted. Maybe I'm totally like wrong, but that's like how I envision Georgia. Is like was that like <laughs> part of the context of just like this is a norm for me? I enjoy this part, or is there even like as you got older? Because like. Our co-host Jim is more on like, I hate guns. I've been very anti-gun my whole life. I've watched people around me, you know, suffer because of guns. But because of what's happening in America and because of racism and structurally, I feel like I he's leaning towards more of on a black nationalist feeling that he should be arming himself. So mm-hmm. kind of within those lenses, like where do you where have you kind of fallen and where, what's your relationship with, you know, uh, being a gun owner? 
also before you go just i just wanted to yeah, say yeah. with the way you you know with the financial i can't not think about you know ving rames guns and butter i feel like you know i feel like you you know you got the literacy stuff you got the gun stuff is, is you know is it guns and butter is that is that the move you know <laughs> shout out baby boy if the reference if everybody you know listen has not watch baby boy but guns and butter you know sorry i just wanted to throw that in no that's a great interjection <laughs> I, I mean man this is there's a lot to unpack i'm gonna do that try to do this as simply as possible so that we can riff on it um my, so my history, I, I grew up, I grew up with this dichotomy inside myself where my dad and my mom are, you know, law abiding citizens always stand up for the right thing. Uh, but then I had that counterculture vibe. And it was hard to parse them. So I would almost have like a split life uh, through most of my middle and high school. Um, some people would call that two face, I just call that surviving. Um, and really early on, I would I, I mean, I played with those green army men, like I literally uh, had immense respect for police. I had immense respect for the military. I wanted to be both of those things myself, uh, even hardcore. Like I said earlier, I wanted to be, I wanted to be elite. Like I wanted to kick doors. I wanted to take down terrorists. I wanted to be, uh, you know, all the GI Joe cartoons that I watched. Um, so I had that very much in me. And then, but most of the time that I was exposed to guns was from the very, I don't want to call it criminal, but from a less law abiding side, you know, the, the attempted drive by, uh, just riding with people that sold, you know, weed or anything else. But growing up with that sort of that feeling of like patriotism in my heart, I mean, Georgia's got some of the most, uh, the largest number of military bases and, and, uh, and active military service people. So did you have family that was military? My granddad was Navy. My, uh, my best friend that I grew up with joined the Navy. My brother joined the army. Um, so it, there, it was one or two degrees always. Um, and so it was just very much a part of the culture. That being said, fast forward to when I really, uh, and by the way, you made that point about uh, licenses. In Georgia, you don't have to have a lot. You just, you live there. In Kennesaw, where, where I lived most of my life, it was, it's in the city ordinances that you have to have a firearm to have a home. <laughs> so it's whoa, like- Whoa, wait, 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 rewind that. Sorry, sorry. Oh, wait, yeah, in, in, Kennesaw, in Kennesaw, you require it. In city ordinances or some one of the laws or whatever, it says that uh, if you have a home, you must have be a gun owner. And I'm pretty yeah. sure that's from some period of time where there was there was less policing. From, but I'm sorry, go ahead. I don't. Yeah, want yeah. To you off. yeah. It's probably from slave times. I mean, oh, that's that's, well, that's 100 yeah. percent it. Yeah. You know, which we can, but I don't. You know, I don't want to take into a long steer. But go ahead, finish. Yeah. No, because you could. We could spend hours about it because <laughs> yeah, the the gun law gun law in this country is all based on racism. So oh, yeah. that's it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I want to be a gun owner. Um, mm. So fast forward to actually finally becoming a gun owner. I you know could I wasn't going to be a gun owner in college, and it wasn't a, as big a thing to me. Um, and then when I got to New York okay, now I'm starting to realize, okay, you know, the world is more dangerous than what we like to admit it to be. And so I, I started becoming educated, like post finance, honestly, when I really started becoming on my own, no money, like restarting my life, I started getting into all kinds of things. So I wanted to learn that I mean, you see on this thing, there's like, there's architecture, there's cooking, and there's fashion It's like, I just started having a thirst for knowledge. And guns was a thing that came very natural to me, because I was like, well, I'm not going to join the military now 
But you know what I could do? I could start learning more about firearms. I could start actually being educated about this. And so I started getting into it. And so through training, I, I have all the permits that I need to basically carry in most states and to have a you know loaded weapon sitting in my in my safe in my house in New York. And so I'm one of those people that uh, takes firearm safety so serious because I know what shitty firearm handling looks like. I decided, okay, I'm going to hire a trainer, um, you know, to sort of educate me on gun safety, carrying because I, I wasn't just because I like guns doesn't mean I was comfortable carrying a weapon on me at all times. Like I wanted to have somebody get me comfortable with that. What is it like if I, if somebody comes up to me in, in the dark at a gas station while I'm pumping gas, what, like, what should I be thinking? What should I be looking for? What is my circle of like comfortability? Like most people don't even understand that. Like if somebody is within 50 yards of you, which is half a football field, most people think, oh, I got time. I'll get away. No, no, no. Somebody's going to be on in 50 yards. If somebody wants you, you're done in like three, four, five seconds. It's over. You don't have a second. Most, most gun conflicts happen within three feet and three seconds. It's not this thing where people figure it out. It's like, oh, somebody's talking shit. I have time to duck behind my car, pull out my, my gun, and then return. There's none of that. None of that happens in most <laughs> armed conflicts. This isn't the police. The police actually have 90% of the time have the most preparation to actually shoot somebody, which is why it's so numbing that they, they kill so many people that are unarmed. I have to be more prepared than a cop. You know what I mean? So anyway, I'm going to go on a, I'm going on a tangent, but my point is I decided to get really informed and, and really aware and very safe and prepared in my own life. And, and that led me to, I mean, I just, now I just love it. I love being at the gun range. I love shooting. I, I ship myself a thousand rounds every time I go to Atlanta and I'm in the gun range four or five days. But so it's interesting hearing you say all those things. I mean, cause the way I take it from there is there is an element of yes, you feeling generally safer, but also your roots of like, you just wanted to kick down doors when you were like a younger kid. <laughs> so you just really fucking like going to the range and just shooting, which is like, I'm in New Hampshire right now at my in-laws and like the neighbors just pop off every night. Yeah, let out some cans and <laughs> I stuff. Mean, yeah. It's crazy. There's, there's like, yeah. a, I think there's like an AR-15 or something around here and they're just yeah. like fully letting off. And which is, a, which is also like a buzzword, by the way, like AR-15, like if, if I want to get and this is going to sound so harsh without seeing my face and me smiling. But if I wanted to get, uh, you know, kill the same amount of people that most school shooters accomplish on average um, with their with the AR-15 or whatever weapon of choice or several weapons they carry, I can do that with several different weapons. If I'm cool, calm, I know what I'm going into doing. If I'm mission oriented, I can accomplish a body count too. I don't need an AR-15. AR-15s just happen to be the most prolific they're easy to build on. They're, they're, they're accessible, but so are a host of other assault rifles. I mean, they're all semi-automatic. It's illegal to have a fully automatic AR-15. So you're depressing the trigger the same, the same amount you would with a pistol. The only thing, or handgun, the only thing that's really different is the point of contact. So my accuracy is going to stay better within my rate of fire, but it's not the smartest weapon to use as I'm rounding corners and I'm doing urban warfare, or urban conflict either. I'm not, a, I'm not a gun expert in terms of combat, but I'm just saying I, I hate that AR-15 is the word that people have just, they even think AR stands for assault rifle and it doesn't. AR-15 isn't really the weapon that the military has issued. You know, arm, army guys aren't even issued a handgun. I mean, there's just so many misconceptions about what mm -hmm. guns go where and who has what. I mean, it's not, it isn't this universal thing. Every state has different set of laws. I'm, I'm on the other hand, I'm on the other side of these things. I don't think a better society is an armed society. So 
don't confuse me with those kind of gun nuts. But I do think a society where I think everybody should be educated in financial literacy from day one, as soon as you can understand the topics. And I think everybody should be trained in gun safety as if it was a sex ed class. Everybody. So that everybody has knows how to own, operate, be safe around one, know what one looks like, knows how to run away from an issue, knows how to de-escalate a conflict, knows how to get away from a conflict. One of the things I learned in self-defense training is that if I have to use my firearm, there's only two results that'll come out of it. Either I'm going to be sitting in a jail, jail cell, really prison, uh, and for white people who don't know, there's a difference. And mm -hmm. number two is I'm going to have a lawsuit on my hands. Because if I shoot somebody because I believe it's self-defense, their family's going to come after me, especially if that person is disabled or killed. They're going to sue me for all the money that I have. And on the other hand, if, I, if it's a wrong pursuit, I'm in prison for the rest of my life. So most people that have any decent self-defense training know that, A, run away from any conflict. If somebody steps on my shoe, I walk away. I don't have those, I don't have those stupid bickers or stupid uh, tangles on a subway platform or at the gas station or anywhere else anymore. If somebody starts talking shit with me, I walk away. I don't even, I, I don't care about my ego. Don't give a shit. If somebody were to pull a firearm on me, that's a different circumstance. But if you're just using your words, I'm getting as far away from you as possible. And that is the ideal gun ownership that I picture. I don't picture a world where somebody talks shit at, at, at my car because I cut them off. And next thing you know, we're in armed conflicts. That's not, that's not what you learn as somebody that goes through self-defense training. And I believe in a host of other laws that should be implemented or, or regulations that should be implemented that I think could be, that, that wouldn't also be uh, racial in their application. It just so happens that all the gun laws that are proposed, mainly by uh, white people that are not gun, owner, gun owners, typically uh, affect black gun ownership and non-white ownership way harsher than they would uh, uh, white people. So would you, would you be down for the Second Amendment being abolished. You know, the, the way that you describe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like, listen, this is the world we live in, in terms of a necessary evil and, and sort of self-preservation, safety, defense, you know, this, this, is, this is why, you know, you should own a gun type of thing versus maybe on the other end of, of the, you know, the, the abolishment of Second Amendment where guns are done. Is, is, that, is that a better place for you? Hmm. Uh, so I would say no, I'm not, I'm not, I've never, I, I don't think I'm, a, I'm not a fan of abolishing the second amendment and at the extreme, I'll say why there, the United States is huge. I mean, we already know the statistics, like there's, I think four guns to every person that's uh, right, in America, right. which means as legal gun owners, that means there's probably like 10 to one or whatever that number would be if you counted 18 year olds and higher. Um, so Part of, part of my rationale is like we're, we're beyond that point. But the other part of the rationale is this. We live in a world where we don't necessarily, we're not able to count on cops to be there when there's an emergency. And that could be an emergency with a knife. It could be a, a rape with you know, a, a, you know, a blunt object. It could be a number of things that aren't gun related. And we, cops are mostly responsive. They're not, it's not like we have precogs, you know, they can, they can jump out and be like, oh, there's a problem that's gonna happen in the next 30 minutes, we're gonna get there early. Um, and so in a reactionary environment, the average police time, I don't know what it is across America, but let's just call it six and a half minutes. That's a hell of a long time. If you ever even tried to give a speech in the front of a classroom for five minutes, you're like, at minute one, you're like, I'm out of shit to say. Can you imagine somebody at your door have just kicked it down and now you just hit 911 and 
you got to wait another mm -hmm. five, six minutes for somebody to show up. So in that mm -hmm. world, that's an extreme. And then at the other extreme, you have the type of gun ownership where you live in rural America, which doesn't represent all of us liberal people in these bubbles uh, of New York, LA, Atlanta, Portland, whatever, where you have people that really do live in uh, police response times that could be greater than 10 minutes, that live further, far from their neighbors. And in all those cases where, where, you, where you're sort of looking at self-defense, you know, I got to say, I feel for them too. So there's, I mean, within a five-minute spectrum and a 15-minute spectrum, it's all scary, and it doesn't have to be just a gun to feel like you need your self-defense uh, uh, capabilities up to par. Um, that being said, I, I believe in a world where we can introduce gun safety earlier, uh, where, because in a world where everybody is familiar with gun safety, you have less people afraid of something. It's the same thing I teach in finance. The more you avoid your finances, the more you ignore it, the more you wait to fix it until, you know, you get a higher income or whatever that, that comes uh, up in your life, the longer mm -hmm. uh, that, that problem festers and becomes bigger and becomes greater. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it creates this fear. Now I don't ever want to look at it. I'll just assume that I'm in debt. I'll keep making the payment and I'll never fix it. And that's the same thing with guns. The, more you, the less you know about it, the more afraid you are of them. Um, most people that go to the range with me that have never touched a firearm leave and are like, that was fun as hell. Because they, they just need the, the, the access to it or, or to be to have somebody introduce them to it uh, for them to have a different a perspective. Um, but I do believe in a, a world where I would love for the state to pay for the psychiatric checks. I don't believe in a world where we implement, um, you know, the, the psychological background checks or, or the meetings with the therapist or whatever they're going to require or that are being proposed where the person that's getting the gun has to pay for it. But I would support a, a version, we have the tax dollars, for the amount of people that actually wanna be a gun owner and would have to, uh, uh, for the government to pay for them to be evaluated, it wouldn't cost, it wouldn't even cost close to the amount of money that it costs for us to get bailed out of COVID-19. So I believe in a world where the government universalizes gun laws, where it's not just like, okay, I'm in New York, can I take my gun and pack it so I can go to Georgia? No, I can't. Okay, when I get to Georgia, I have to have a separate gun there that my dad owns, so that I could, and then I have to have a Florida permit so that I can now carry the gun. I mean, what sense does that make? Uh, New York City is no, it's, it's not special just because there's eight more, eight million more people than, I don't know how many people live in Atlanta, maybe four or five. It's not, New York isn't special because we live on top of each other. The gun laws in New York have been corrupt and racial just as much as they've been in the rest of the United States. We don't have no guns or it's harder to get guns in New York just because there's a lot of people. That's just what they tell people. And people believe it because it's like, oh, that makes sense. No, no, no. Every state has their different gun laws based on who would be affected right. by what and, you know, who's got the lobby group and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so no, to answer it, that was a long-winded way to say I don't, I don't support the abolishment of Second Amendment, but I do, I do encourage, like, more, I hate that buzzword, uh, level-headed or whatever, sensible gun laws. I do support sensible gun mm. laws, but just ones that wouldn't, be, wouldn't, wouldn't hurt a, a given race. And I think the state should pay for that. So Justin, I, where my mind went was like, you know, I, I totally agree in general. Like I have no, I have no interest in shooting guns. I have, it's not that exciting to me personally, but I understand yeah, yeah. like the sensible gun law and stuff. And like, you know, also not running away from the fact that we just have a, we, we have a proliferation, right? So in, in, in a perfect world, we would have a lot less, but we don't. Um, so acting where I get a little bit lost though, too, is like thinking about, okay, so now we have to spend all these resources and training everyone. And then it's like, to me, that it's also, like, you know, also even sounding like the, the slippery or the, the jump I made, tell me if you don't believe in this jump at all, but is 
to me, what I was kind of hearing was, okay, so everyone should be trained. So we probably should even have like teachers trained because now they're the ones who are going to be the best, like on the front lines, the response. But then what I also even heard from you, which is how I always think about this is you're like 50 yards away. Isn't a very, like these things happen super duper quick. Also, we know that like a lot of people just are generally don't have the same skills. Like you just might, even with all the training you have, you just might be like someone who's like better hand-eye coordination or just like general, like physical skills, like, and like not everyone has all of those things. And so to me, I, I'm not saying I'm fully against it because I try to be a pragmatist and I agree with you. It's a complicated situation when we're potentially 10 to one, not even four to one. Um, yeah. I just, I get a little nervous when that the rhetoric starts feeling to me a little bit like NRA ish, which is like, the, the put the <laughs> I'm not that at like all. The schools. <laughs> but you know, you can see where like, it, it's, it's really just one jump further to like make that connect. Or even if people want to use that language that you're using to start pushing it in that direction. And I think that's where my head goes, even though I'm like all for like, I don't care if people are shooting guns around me. Like I, I want people to be trained. Like, I, I know at this point it's it's totally unreasonable to think that we can just like get rid of guns, which is why I usually think gun buyback programs are kind of a waste of time. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's that's where my mind went. I gotta say honestly, I didn't make that jump um, from training to front lines, and the reason I don't make that jump is because I'm not. You know how people um, pro lifers say stuff like, "Oh, they're pro abortion." I'm not. I'm not pro gun. Like I like I would be women's right to choose. I'm for the right to choose. Not not everybody should get abortions because they're available. You know what I mean? And and so my <laughs> my my thing is like training just so we all know what the landscape is like. How do we? How, yeah. I mean, I I also think that people should have mass shooter trainings at every like in corporations and and all the play. Any anytime we can train ourselves to just be better suited for our environment, I think we should have that training be provided. Um, so no, I'm not. I'm not. I, again, I'm not a. The armed society is a better one. I'm not a teacher should have guns. I, I'm not on that side. If they so have, you know, make the choice and, you know, that that's a different conversation. And I don't even know where I stand on teachers with guns yet. Um, I haven't really done the thinking because I haven't been in school for so long. Um, the second point that I would make is that, I, and I think the point that uh, I kind of keep tr dancing around is that one of the reasons I'm not for uh, getting rid of the Second Amendment is because typically, what happens is all laws sort of move in the direction of white folks first. And what I mean by that is, okay, we've had a bunch of school, I mean, since Columbine, the, the velocity of the, the amount of school shootings that happen um, in a given time period has increased. Although it's still such a sensational thing versus an actual body count thing versus an actual, it, it's kind of like suicide. When somebody is suicide and they publicize it in the news, you create this permissioning in effect, which, which sort of triggers other people to be a part of that. When school shootings happen, they usually happen basically in white schools. And then the, the increase of that happening in white schools pick up and then white people go, we gotta get rid of guns. You shoot up a concert at Ariana Grande, which was probably, I'm gonna guess, even it's 80% white, it's probably more than that. But when white people start getting killed, white people try to change laws. Black people have been getting killed by guns. I mean, if you, if you had to ask me the statistic of like, on average, how many shootings happen in New York on a given day? I've had people say, I don't know, like one or two. No, no, not even close. There are some days in, I live in Harlem, the projects are right next to me. There are some days in New York where there are upwards of 100 shootings a day, 100. But most white people live in this bubble that it's, it's safe. I have my luxury apartment that I walk, or I have my brownstone in Brooklyn that I walk up to. The world is just like sort of this 
safe atmosphere. And if we remove the guns, that means the other people that are living near this bad stuff, they'll be safe too. But that's not how, that's not how it works. When you remove guns for everybody, you really just remove guns from the people that have already had the most limited access to them. And the people that will always get access through loopholes or the people that are supposed to be serving and protecting us that don't get all of them. You just created it. You just, you just take the racial divide that's here and you go back to making it here. And that's sort of my take on the, on the racial issues is that it's white people for, for run things as if they're saving something. And I don't, I don't mean the white savior complex. I just mean it finally affects them and they happen to have the most power because they happen to be the bigger population so they can affect change. Then they affect change in the direction, which is going to best suit them. And then they end up leaving us out, even though they think they're helping us. And I don't think that's what actually happens in reality. I think in, in, in reality, a gunless society is a society where either the people that uh, where police and military have the guns and we've, we have proven that police are not fair or equal or balanced or even protective of our lives. Or you have people that would have been criminals get the guns anyway, because there's always going to be some sort of black market. And now you have a, a, a defensive citizenry that's depending on cops. I, black people don't want to call cops either. You know what I mean? Well, it's just, just, it's just a, a circle. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So my, my question back to that is, and I don't know the answer to this is, is, is that true that like the majority, if when, when polled and polls only mean so much, so we'll take that with a grain of salt, but that the black community feels more strongly. Cause I get the racial components of like white people starting to care and all the things totally true in, in all the different ways. But like, is that like, and I don't know, maybe, I, I feel like you've done the research on this. So have you found that in pollings that like majority black communities or black constituencies feel this way? Cause to me, this feels a little bit more, and I'm not saying you are, but it feels a little bit more of like a black conservative like standpoint, but like, feel free to disrupt that. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't, I haven't looked at the, the statistics on that. What I do know is that, and I don't know the actual numbers, but the last thing or the last couple articles I read was that a lot of the, if you, if you look at sort of gun violence in America, First, it's like, uh, first, I, I might be swapping one and two, but it's like suicide first, then it's, uh, then it's domestic assault, and then it's uh, criminal, uh, like illegal firearm usage. And then you start getting into these other subcategories that go lower and lower. But when you think about the psyche of what most people are worried about in terms of gun violence, well, <laughs> the biggest one is the most sensational one, which is mass casualty events. But the ones that actually impact us the most on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of loss of life, it tends to be people taking their own lives, which obviously guns make it a lot easier to take your life. Um, and I, I'm not going to express an opinion on that. Uh, and then, then when you look at uh, illegal, illegal firearms, I would love for we, us to be able to police illegal firearms. We have, that, what I'm, basically what I'm trying to gear up to say, regardless of the black community, it's a conservative or a liberal standpoint, is that there is a lot of air, a lot of oxygen, between outright banning and actually getting control of the situation. And what happens is you take a sensational thing like mass casualty events and you leap across the page from second amendment rights, which is like that, I mean, that NRA thing, which I don't stand for. And you jump all the way to no guns for anybody. We'll do a New Zealand thing where there's like, even like a 10th or a 16th or a 15th of, or whatever amount of people there with absolutely no guns anyway. And you jump all the way across the page. And what I'm saying is, there's a lot of room to actually get our gun issues under control. A lot of room, but we just never tried any of those things because you have people like the NRA that are so dead set on protecting the second amendment as an entire concept instead of letting it, instead of letting it be improved 
that you that you you don't you never get to talk about those things in the middle. You only talk about the the, the worst outcomes. And if we if we I, I don't I don't I'm not an expert in policy, but if we had something uh, some sort of psychological checks, I, I have a feeling that we get a little further away from the domestic abuse number, the suicide numbers. If we I, I don't want to say change the the type of weapons that we allow, but maybe it's maybe it's being aware of uh, the amount of bullets people purchase, uh, like when they stock up or something like that. Maybe that draws a red flag. I know a lot of people will be like that impedes my liberty, but that's one I'm willing to sell my liber- liberty on. If I if I stock up on bullets, I'm not saying go interview me, but I'm saying if that pops a red flag in the system, I'm not a, I'm not opposed to you knowing that I bought 2,000, 3,000 rounds. Fine, know it, because I know where I'm going to go use it. But maybe the person that bought those rounds has an idea in their head, and maybe it's good to have them on the radar if something bad happened at their jobs. I, the, the slippery slope about gun laws that they're always going to argue is that, okay, well, if we monitor your bullet purchase or the amount of weapons that you own or the type of weapon you just purchased or uh, monitor whether you bought a gun after you lost your job or whatever, you get into the slippery slope of like, do people have the right to choose or be, be angry and still own a weapon? Do you get into this very slippery slope thing, but I'm willing to go down the slippery slope in order to make more people feel safer around guns. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying everybody should have a gun, nobody should have a gun, but I'm saying we never examine this middle area because people are because Second Amendment people are too afraid to go there because they think that's a, that's the slope to losing their guns. And people that are really, really liberal are, are sort of pushing against the enemy they see in the corner, which is the big Second Amendment person. But there is an entire, it's not just me that happens to have better hand-eye coordination or more <laughs> access to the education. There are a lot of black folks, white folks, Hispanic folks, Asian folks. There are a lot of people in the middle that are just like, are are centrist you know that they just yeah. want to be legal gun owners that just want to both enjoy it and have it for self-defense or even for competition shooting or whatever that obviously would want a safer place too you know there's a lot of people in the middle that's what we're missing about most poly- uh, political discussions too there's no nuance I- i'm willing to give up a little bit of my owning a weapon is an awesome responsibility if having that awesome responsibility means I need to give up a little bit of my civil liberties in order to own that, uh, that responsibility, so be it. So be it. And I think more people should take that, take that stance and we should do it in a way that protects some of our freedoms. But you own a gun. You could kill somebody. Maybe you shouldn't have all the freedoms attached that somebody that's walking around with no gun has. You know what I mean? I think the, um, you know, just to uh, be the, speak to the more radical side of, the abolishing the second amendment, which I think that I fall on, but you know, here, I think here, here's the argument for me. Um, I, I agree with a lot of the things that you said and in the middle, there's so much nuance in the middle and there are, there are sort of checks and balances that we can take. And, and, you know, I, I think that that is probably true, but I don't, I, I just don't think that it will ever work in American society specifically because of, because of our history uh, with with the with why the Second Amendment is in the first place, and you and you touched on this. You know, you talked about how households it it's law to own a gun in the in the household in that town or that city in Georgia, which is real. You know, the reason my ears perked up is because that's that comes from a lot with with what I've read. I mean, the Second Amendment in the first Constitution after the Revolution is is wholly. Um, you know, it's not about state militia because that's already in the Constitution. You sort of the genealogy of the the National Guard. It's about civilians having the ability 
to protect themselves, knowing that they have endangered themselves stealing land from indigenous people and enslaving <laughs> black people, enslave, enslave insurrections, and also the sort of the genealogy of slave patrols, which are modern policing. So, you know, with that history and that and, and, the, and how that's reflected in today is that I think the, the, the statistics are 60% uh, of gun owners are white men. Mm -hmm and they are 30% of the population in, in America. And the average gun holder, uh, legal gun holder has 10 guns. So there is sort of a, a huge disproportionate um, gun ownership leaning towards white men. And that is, is wholly tied to the protection of the power of white men, um, mm -hmm. you know, which means the, the maintenance of, of the oppression of non-white men. You know, so I, I think that if that, in fact, is tied to the past of the maintenance of white supremacy, I don't know if there is there will ever be any nuance. I don't know if there ever there will ever be any middle ground um, that we can achieve in this country, in this society with its very pertinent and powerful history that's that still lives with us. You know, so I'm skeptical in that sense that it'll ever work because we, we, we're just completely inexorably tied to that past and it's reflected in the numbers of of gun, gun ownership today. Now, what I will say is, you know, the whole sort of side of terms of illegal firearms, say we do abolish a second amendment, we would have to put together some really, really draconian anti-gun laws in order to, you know, maybe curve the, the sort of illegal ownership, right? So that's another challenge and that's hard. And then you get, and then, and then you, so I don't, you know, I, I don't know the, the answers on that, um, but you, you know, you talk about the police, are we going to disarm black people and leave them up as prey to the police that that are armed you know I, I wonder if there's not some symbiotic relationship there in that a society that gunless society we can then extend that to law enforcement i don't know you know but 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 i know that law enforcement has guns because um you know it's tied to the history of slave insurrections and slave patrols right. you know so that so that's a different history too kind of thing and then the sort of the the, the, the one pushback i think is a good point that a lot of people bring up is but what about just civilian protection? Police are late, you know, 10 minutes, you call them, you're already dead because whatever on, on the civilian front, you know, I, I, I don't know about middle America in, in the suburbs, the crime rate there, but I know the crime rate in urban centers in this country is higher uh, by dint of centuries of segregation and concentrated mm -hmm. uh, poverty and, and joblessness. And I, I think, you know, in order to alleviate the crime rather than you know tacking on guns as a protection after the fact alleviating that would just be desegregation you know mm -hmm. uh, completely reversing you know the, the the history of redlining you know whether that's through integration but uh basically abolishing ghettos as james Baldwin would say you know uh, sort of improve them out of existence you know and i think that that is a huge huge crime prevention before it gets to the fact that somebody's kicking your door down you know because those, those neighborhoods just are troubled by dint of segregation and institutional discrimination that creates more crime and then to address that after the fact with with guns it makes it hard you know so those are all of my thoughts and that is why you know i would be on the side of abolishing the second amendment because the second amendment is just part and parcel of a history of, of racism and you know i would want to go all the way on the other side of that to, to try and better things justin we're gonna get you got the last word yeah, you got the last word. Yeah. Well, just on the gun thing, I was just going to uh, finish up by saying that I, I agree with what you're saying. I would almost say that the, the whole gun narrative, the gun conversation is is probably the distraction, right? Like if we didn't have the things you're talking about, the segregation in our cities, if we didn't, it, lack mm -hmm. of opportunities, 
all these things, we could we could drop the the crime rate even faster than we do by having draconian uh, gun laws and and police, mm-hmm. you know, marching down our block. Um, right. And so in many ways, I agree with everything you're saying up to the point where we get rid of uh, the Second Amendment completely. <laughs> and and that's just a that's just a different opinion only because I think with that extreme view, I think in most cases, it's impossible to accomplish the extreme of either one of these conversations, which is what brought me to the middle in the first place. It's mm, like, yeah. you know, when we when we will accomplish these things, I think we actually will accomplish these things. And it will and it will work along the timeline that it that it works where, uh, where white people stop becoming the majority, which I can't remember 2048 or something like that, if we keep going at the rate we're going, we'll actually start tipping the scales. Now, I don't know if the black people that end up becoming gun owners are siding with the with the side that's against what you're saying. But there is a real chance in the future, maybe not soon enough, but there is a real chance that we can we can tackle some of these issues in the middle or at least give it a shot because I'm willing to give it a shot in the middle. And if that doesn't work, dude, let's abolish it. I don't need to have a gun. You know, like at the end of the day, if we can really get rid of all the laws and not hurt people by doing that, I, you know what? For better for society, I'm not the, the asshole that's like by any means necessary. You know, I'm just a regular I'm a regular Joe Smo that wants everybody to have the right to pursue a happy, healthy life. You know what I mean? Word. Co-sign that. Love it. Justin, uh, this has been a treat. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, everyone follow uh, Justin at the Freelance Kills podcast. Justin, where should they follow you on Instagram? You got a bunch of different handles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you, yeah, if you want to get more information about finance, freelance, personal wellness, come visit me at, free, at Freelance Kills on Instagram. FreelanceKills.com is the, is the website. Uh, but I have a podcast every Wednesday. Uh, that I drop and it, you know, the topics vary between those three pillars. And sometimes I cover race. And then if you are interested in looking up my photography or, or checking out the studio, you can find it all through the one Instagram handle by Bridges. But yeah, I'm easy to find. And I'll, if you have any questions or want to talk to me, reach out. I'll talk to everybody. Word. Love it. All right. Appreciate it, everyone. We'll be back next week. Appreciate it, bro. Thanks, guys. Peace.